So, here we are. Abnormal psychology, Psych 213. We're going to talk about anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders today. Now, in our, our textbook, this is chapter six. This is actually two different categories of disorders. I'm hoping we can make it through the anxiety disorders category. We'll stop. Um, and then next part two of the recording will just be obsessive compulsive disorders. Not sure if we'll make it through that way, but that's what I'm shooting for. Um, these both used to be in the same category. So obsessive compulsive disorder used to be an anxiety disorder, but in DSM-5, they felt that it was unique and different enough to separate it out, and so that's what they did, all right? So just so you know, that's, that's kind of where we're headed. So let's talk a little bit about fear, fear and anxiety. Um, what do we see? We see that humans are born with an innate capacity to experience fear. Um, there seems to be this protection. Think about it from a survival of the species standpoint. Our ability to respond to fear stimuli, you know, you see a snake laying on the ground, you don't know if that snake is poisonous or not. Best thing to do, run away. See a spider climbing across, you don't know whether that spider is poisonous or not, run away. So some objects make sense that we're fearful of, right? So fear is just a normal response. We see that, we have that innate capacity. But there's a distinction sometimes made between responses of fear and anxiety. So fear is an adaptive state um, for dealing with a real threat or danger. So fear is normal. Being fearful of the dark when you don't know what could happen in the dark and you can't see very well in the dark makes sense, right? Being fearful of a spider, of a snake, of a larger animal, of another person, right? So again, fear is a normal, healthy response. It's adaptive in some ways if you want to think about it. Anxiety, however, is the apprehensive anticipation of future danger or misfortune. Now, sometimes we can have fear that comes out of nowhere. In other words, it maybe is fearful of an object, but it's not based in reality. Sometimes we have anxiety, this anticipated fear of future danger, but again, it's not based in reality. So when we start getting into those points where it goes extreme, both fear or, or anxiousness, that's when we're gonna start talking about abnormal behavior, when it's extreme. Does that make sense? Questions? All right. So how are we gonna measure it? Well, we can measure fear um, really three different ways. So ways that we can infer indirectly fear is one, subjective experiences of apprehension. So you have feelings of dread, fright, tension, an inability to concentrate, the desire to flee a particular situation, maybe even physical sensations, maybe your heart starts to race. So this is the subjective experiences of apprehension. They're your experiences. What makes you fearful, what makes me fearful are two different things, right? I might, I might think snakes are awesome. I love snakes. Somebody else, just the thought of snakes freaks them out. So again, it's subjective. Number two, the behavioral manifestations, the fight or flight, um, disorganized um, speech, uh, motor incoordination, impairment of performance on complex problem-solving task, sometimes that kind of freezing, that, that shock where you just kind of stand in one spot. Have you ever seen something go down and you just kind of, you're just frozen, like you, you almost can't get out of the way? You see it in movies all the time, you know, you go, well, 
What is that person standing in the middle of the road for? What is it? You know, somebody has to grab them and move them out of the way. Well, if you're walking across the road and you turn and there's a truck coming at you, you may freeze. In other words, your system gets so overwhelmed behaviorally, you, you can't move. An immobilization, so think of it that way, right? So that can happen, and there's physiological responses, rapid or regular heartbeat, breathing, um, sweating of the palms, dry mouth, dilated pupils, again, muscular trembling. So again, it could be all th you know, some kind of experience that affects you across all three of these dimensions. So subjective experiences, behavioral manifestations, or physiological responses. So, you know, think about maybe you have uh, a phobia of dogs, right? So it, it's a fear of dogs. All of a sudden you see a dog coming down the street and you, psychologically, you become overwhelmed. You think, oh, holy crap, you know, I'm going to be attacked. You know, physiologically, um, your heart starts racing. You, your palms start sweating. You're not sure what this dog is going to do. And then behaviorally, you want to run away, right? So again, we could see that. Here are the categories, according to the DSM-5, that exist in this umbrella term of anxiety disorders. So remember, the umbrella term is anxiety disorders and the different pieces underneath it. Here they are. One is panic disorder. We'll talk about that. Agoraphobia, specific phobia, and social anxiety phobia or social phobia. So there's three phobias, right? We could talk about generalized anxiety disorder, what we call GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. And remember now in DSM-5, we've included childhood disorders in with adult disorders. So the other ones that fall in here now are separation anxiety disorder. Usually you see that as something um, that kids have, but here you know, we throw it into the anxiety disorder. Selective mutism, and you might go, Wait, how is selective mutism an anxiety disorder? Well, we believe that at its root or cause is anxiety or fear. And so that's why it falls under this category. And then other anxiety disorders. Yes? Out of all of these listed, um, at each of their worst, like say you're on the most extreme in the worst way for all of these. Right. Are they all the same level of crappiness for lack of better phrasing whereas one of these at its worst worse than all the other ones no i mean if you're experiencing one of these disorders it's crappy to begin with okay. so um the level to which you experience it could be extreme in any case you know it could be could be for example that you have such a agoraphobia is a fear of open spaces where you believe no help is available. That could be so impactful you can't leave your house. You know, you could have panic disorder, so fearful that every time you turn around you're expecting a panic attack coming. And so again, so I mean these can be these are impactful in your world. Phobias, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. We'll talk about the different categories. Generalized anxiety disorder tends to be a, a low level of anxiety or worry, but it's chronic. So it's the worry war who worries about everything. So you might say, well, that's not as impactful as the other ones. Well, yeah, but over time, physiologically, it's still going to beat you up. So I would say they're all 
equally, to use your term, crappy. Right? They, they all, none of them are, are a condition that you want. Some are easier to deal with. I'll say it that way. So some are easier to cope with, others aren't. And I'll point those out as we go through. Good question, though. So let's go ahead and take a look at these, right? The first one, well, you can see this chart. So here's a chart that shows you, again, the disorders, what the key symptoms are, the minimum requirement for the diagnosis, like how long it lasts, and then the ratio. So separation anxiety disorders, first one you see listed up here. Excessive anxiety concerning separation from home or a caregiver. Four weeks for children and adolescents six months for adults. So it's got to be a problem going on for at least one month for children and adolescents, at least six months for adults. And what we see more common in females than male. Next one, selective mutism. Consistent failure to speak in certain situations but not others. So maybe the person will talk with their parent but they won't talk in school at all, ever. Like when they're around any kind of stranger, maybe that's, it's that kind of selectiveness, right? What we see is it's got to happen for at least one month, and there doesn't seem to be a, a, a gender difference here. So males more fe common, females, no, they, it tends to be pretty even when we take a look at, again, the breakup between males or females. Specific phobia, uh, a marked fear or anxiety uh, cued by a specific object or situation. The duration has to be at least six months and more common in females. Again, I wonder if males just don't report it as often. And I think we see that in a lot of disorders, so I'm just sharing that with you. Social anxiety disorder, a social phobia, a fear of social situations, public speaking, getting up in front of others. Uh, marked fear or anxiety cued by social or performance situations. Again, minimum requirement is six months. It can't just be a temporary condition um, and more common in females. Um, and you can see all of these, for the most part, from this point forward, more common in females. But again, I still say that they're more willing to report it. Panic disorder, reoccurrent unexpected panic attacks has to happen for at least one month. Agoraphobia, marked fear or anxiety of being in situations from which escape would be difficult. Yep, bless you. So a marked fear or anxiety of being in situations from which escape would be difficult if incapacitating or embarrassing symptoms occur. So we used to say agoraphobia was fear of open spaces. I always like to add on the end, fear of open spaces where you perceive no help available. Um, so it's this idea that you're going to be out in public, you're going to be out in front of people, something's going to happen, your symptoms are going to come out to embarrass you. And so that incapacitates you. We'll talk more about it as we go on. Um, generalized anxiety disorder, excessive worry and anxiety about a number of events or activities has to exist for at least six months um, for it to be called generalized anxiety disorder. Remember, if you were anxious about situations for less than six months, what might we call it? Acute. Acute? No, we don't really have acute anxiety disorder, but we do have a disorder we talked about earlier. It's not PTSD, it's the one just N below that. Right, Adjustment? not. 
adjustment disorder, right? Adjustment disorder is a temporary condition. Less than six months usually is what we think. This is a condition that lasts longer than six months. So let's talk about it. Before we get into panic disorder, I need to define what a panic attack is. How many people in here have ever suffered from a panic attack? Wow. So, you know, about 75% of the class has raised their hand. Um, so here we go. This is diagnosis of a, of a panic attack, if you will. It involves a rapidly developing sense of intense fear or anxiety. And if you guys want to add anything to this about what you experience, like if I'm missing something, let me know. Right, so people feel intense discomfort. Um, some thinking uh, that they're, that they're going to die, especially if it's their first experience, they just think they're going to die. I had an, a panic attack on an airplane. came out of nowhere. I'd been on a plane many times. Not sure why this one time. Just remember it felt like my chest, my heart was jumping through my chest. Thought I was having a heart attack. You know, went to the doctor afterwards. Everything was fine. There was no markers that I'd had even a, a you know, minor kind of cardiac kind of issue, issue whatsoever. It was just an anxiety. Just don't know what brought it about. Can't explain it. It's never happened since. But out of nowhere. And I did feel like I was going to die. Um, so kind of interesting. Notice it says panic attacks are relatively rare in children. They're much more common in adults. About one in nine adults in a 12-month period of time will experience a panic attack. One in nine. Panic attacks are not by themselves, however, a mental health disorder. They're not a diagnosis. So if you've had a panic attack, that does not mean that you have a mental health disorder by itself. However, patterns of panic attacks can be diagnosable, and that's what we're going to talk about. Right? Um, notice it says panic attacks do play a role in several anxiety disorders. So here are some of the symptoms. Notice it says you have to have at least four of these symptoms in order for you to call it a true panic attack. Um, and so I'll just read down through this list real quick. Heart palpitations or accelerated heart rate. That should be heart rate, not hear rate. Um, trembling or shaking. Sweating. Chest pain. Shortness of breath or sensation of suffocating, feelings of choking, dizziness, numbness or tingling sensations, chill or heat sensations, nausea, derealization or depersonalization, fear of losing control, fear of dying. Any symptoms that you guys have experienced that maybe weren't on that list? Yes. Cried, excessive crying, uncontrolled crying, right? Tearfulness. What else? Anything? Mine was like, didn't, like where it says dizziness, but mine was more of like stuff started being very blurry for me. Okay. It so started like waving, like it looked like things that weren't moving started to like move, come in and go back out, and it's very so kind of like an oscillating effect where it yeah. comes in and goes out and comes in. Again, one might argue that that's depersonalization or derealization more so than dizziness. But again, it's this detachment from reality experiences. Did you have? Oh, um, I was just going to basically say, like, when I had my panic attack, it was in the middle of class um, when I was in high school. Okay. So, like, I, like, right in the middle of class, and everything kind of went dark. And so, like, I didn't see anyone, I didn't hear anyone. It was just me and my thoughts, and that was it. And feeling overwhelmed in your yeah. thoughts. Yeah, and then just this feeling of panic. Yeah. 
and then fades. And that's one of the things about panic attacks is they do fade. They, they tend to be time limited. Um, but while you're experiencing it, it doesn't matter if you think it's going to fade. Yeah, those, oh, well, it's, it's where it says heart palpitations or accelerated heart rate, I could feel it in my ears. You could feel your heart rate in your ears, yeah. you know, your, the pounding of your heart. Yep, yep, can't argue with that. So again, these are the symptoms of a panic attack, right? So panic disorder. Here's what's cool about panic disorder. No, it's not panic attack disorder, but it could be. But here's what panic disorder says. Panic disorder is characterized by recurrent, spontaneous, and unexpected panic attacks with anxiety about future attacks or their consequences. So you start to have anxiety over the potential of having a panic attack or another panic attack. Maybe you've experienced one and now all of a sudden you're like, what if this happens during class again? What if it happens during an airplane ride again? What if it happens while I'm driving in traffic? Oh my God, what's going to happen? And so it almost takes on a life of its own. Panic attacks become the center focus of your anxiety. Notice it says panic attacks are not due to another medical condition or the effects of a substance. Because if that's recovery or coming down from some substance, that's a different issue. If it's a medical condition, that's a different issue. Again, there's a cause. This is unexpected, recurrent, you don't know when this is spontaneous panic attacks for no apparent reason, just coming out. They've been followed by, by one month or more of persistent concern that the attacks will reoccur or lead to significant changes in behavior related to avoiding another attack. So you actually change your life patterns because you're not sure when the next panic attack is going to happen. You're looking for what the cause was and you can't identify it. Questions? What about the treatment? So treatment of panic disorders, um, antidepressant um, medications like SSRIs have been used to effectively treat panic disorder without the risk of dependence like things like benzodiazepines. So benzodiazepines are anti-anxiety meds. They're very efficient at reducing anxiety, but they also are very addictive. But if we use things like SSRIs or antidepressant medication, they can be effective. Yes? So why is it that with panic disorder, there's relatively low risk of dependence, but in other... Well, no, no. It's only if you're using antidepressant okay. or SSRIs. The minute that you get into a benzodiazepine medication, and, you know, some of the more traditional anti-anxiety meds, there's always the risk of developing an addiction. That's okay. the problem. Now, notice... These are helpful in treating panic disorder, but that doesn't mean it's the best treatment. Notice that behavioral or cognitive behavioral therapies involving exposure to feared internal stimuli or external stimuli, and that's called introceptive or extroceptive stimuli. So stimuli that's not you know, either attributable in to internal inside you or external. Um, these are quite successful and actually appear to be more effective and less subjected to relapse than pharmacological interventions. So I can put you on antidepressant medications, things like SSRIs, 
But as soon as I take you off of that, it really hasn't treated what the possible stimuli might be. And so there's a higher risk of a relapse. Does that make sense? Because all I'm really doing is treating the symptom. I'm not really getting to the cause. If I use cognitive behavioral therapies and I can get to the internal cause or maybe external triggers, if I can identify what the triggers are that might bring about a panic attack, now we can work with that. So again, that's much more effective. You're going to find with anxiety disorders, medication is an easy treatment. It may stop it temporarily, but it might not be the best long-term treatment. So again, it's just one of the things to see. Next one, agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is fear of open spaces, right, where no help is available. Sometimes it's tied in with panic attacks. So it involves anxiety about being in places or situations from which escape would be difficult, embarrassing, or impossible in the event of having a panic attack or panic-like symptom. That's okay, no, you've got questions. Notice it says here, I do want to say this note and then I'll ask your question. It says, panic attacks can occur with or without accompanying agoraphobia. So you don't have to have agoraphobia to have panic attacks, but for agoraphobia, this fear of open spaces, the idea is that you're going to be away from home, you're going to have a panic attack, there's not going to be anyone there to help you, you're going to embarrass the hell out of yourself, so I'm just not going to leave the home. I'm not going to leave my house. Go ahead. So, didn't we used to call people with agoraphobia shut-ins? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would argue that back in the day, we go back even 15, 20 years ago, if you had agoraphobia, it immobilized you. I mean, you can't leave your house. You can't go anywhere, you can't go shopping, you can't pick up clothes, you can't pay bills, you can't communicate with people. But I would argue with technology we have today, you could be agoraphobic and never leave your home. You can have Amazon deliver food right to your house, right? We even have grocery store delivery now. You can interview for positions over Skype. You can communicate with therapists without leaving your living room. So agoraphobia used to be this impactful, you know, really, really immobilize you. But nowadays, I th you could actually function with agoraphobia. The down part is maybe that means more and more people have it and we don't know it because they are functioning but they're doing so behind the scenes and they never shows up. So I don't know, it's just something to think about. Question? Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that because we are in such a tech, whatever age, do you think that helps people with agoraphobia or do you think that hinders them from trying to help them leave the house? I think it could be both. I think it helps them to function in a more normal way, but I think it hides or masks what's going on and I think that that can create problems if they really want to get out of their home. I mean, I, and again, that's a bigger discussion whether technology helps us or hurts us as individuals or as a society and culture. I, I, I think the judgment's still out on that. I think there's pros and cons, you know. So here we go, um, agoraphobia. Notice it says it can occur without a history of a panic attacks. Right, so because it can occur without panic attacks, it's got its own diagnosis. 
It can be with or without. Again, fear of open spaces. Notice it says both agoraphobia and panic disorder are given for people who have both sets of symptoms. So you could. You could have panic disorder and agoraphobia. You could have both disorders, co-occurring disorders. You could have agoraphobia with no panic disorder. But more than likely, you're probably having a little bit of both. You know, and think about it. which came first. Did the panic disorder occur because you left the house or was the panic disorder there first and now you can't leave the house? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Mm, I don't know. I think it can happen either way. What about treatments? Well, here we go again. Cognitive behavioral and behavioral therapy techniques, right? So exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And what does that mean? It means I get you to leave the house, to expose yourself, to, to take those risks, to be vulnerable in some way. Maybe I do it through virtual reality exposure therapy. I get you to imagine leaving the house. What might it be like? You know, as your anxiety, so I have you put on a virtual reality, we're going to take a walk down the neighbor street. And that's going to create a ton of anxiety for you. Of course, it's not real, but, you know, if you've ever been in a virtual reality kind of software program, it feels real. So can I get you to work on those feelings, and then we can go do it in real life. So something else. And again, pharmacological treatment, and you're going to find this. These are all anxiety disorders, so the treatments are all going to be very similar. Again, SSRIs or antidepressants are the best mode. Why would you take an anti-anxiety you know, medication like a benzodiazepine, something that might be addictive, when this only might come up just at the thought of leaving the house? If you never leave the house, you're not going to have that anxiety. So why would you take a medication on a regular basis? So something to think about. Specific phobia. This is another category. Specific phobia is, and by the way, agoraphobia used to in the past fall under specific phobia because agoraphobia is fear of open spaces where no help is available. It's a specific situation phobia. But because it's so impactful, it was brought out to be its own. Does it kind of make sense? Because of its impact. So, specific phobia involves intense or persistent fear triggered by a specific object or situation. Here is the key. The fear reaction is excessive. For most individuals, realize that the reactions are excessive and unreasonable, but it doesn't reduce it. Fearful of spiders. Like, or, no, let me use this one. I like to use this one because it's, you know, I can pick on my daughter a little bit, right? Uh, my daughter has a fear of stink bugs. She cannot stand stink bugs. When she was younger, and I don't know what those bugs are called in other cultures or other countries, but here in the United States we call them stink bugs, because if you smush them, they stink. They have a certain smell about them. And all I can tell you is the first time you smell that, you never get that smell out of your nose. Well, my daughter can walk in her room and she's like, she's like the woman from Poltergeist, the movie. You know, here's my movie reference again, right? The, the shorter little woman who comes in and she goes, this house is clean. My, my daughter will walk into her room and she'll go, there is a stink bug in this room. I can smell it. And we're like, I, I can remember, you know, as a parent, you're like, it's time for bed. 
I don't, I don't want to hear about the stink bugs. There is, I cannot sleep. There's a stink bug in this room. Meltdown, right? We will search her whole room, and no lie, there will be like one stink bug behind a curtain by the window somehow. I don't know how she finds it. I don't know how she senses it. I don't know if it's some sixth sense kind of thing, but she just does. So that's an excessive fear. All she has to do is take a napkin. It's like, oh, I just walk in. I'm like, okay, let me grab the napkin. Right there. It's, but you smushed it. Yeah, I smushed it. It's gone. It stinks now. Well, you know, it's a stink bug. I don't know what to tell you, honey. Either let the stink bug exist and coexist with you, or we get rid of them this way. Right? Well, I couldn't leave the windows open in a room no matter how hot it got because stink bugs could get in. I mean, that's an excessive fear. She's significantly taller than a stink bug. Now, my daughter's short, but she's still much taller than a stink bug. So you just look at it like, what? How can you? It doesn't seem reasonable. And she knows. She knows it's kind of off. She knows it doesn't make sense. She knows, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the anxiety or fear. Um, the specific phobia is not diagnosed unless it lasts for six months and, here's the key, interferes significantly with a person's life or is associated with marked distress. She can't go to school because a school might have a stink bug in it. Now that's a problem. That's more of a problem. Would I say that her fear of stink bugs was excessive? Well, I think it was a little extreme. I don't necessarily think it was an abnormal, completely abnormal behavior. Part of me says some of it was learned because her grandmother is, hates stink bugs too. She would spend a lot of time with her grandmother and her grandmother would be like, get those things out of my house. And so again, could a granddaughter start to imitate a grandmother's behavior? Sure, not gonna say it wouldn't happen. When we're done talking about phobias, we'll stop for today, but let me get through this category. So DSM provides um, for including subtypes of specific phobias. So the five subtypes that kind of fall. So you've got anxiety disorders, imagine umbrella, labels anxiety disorders. One sliver is specific phobias. You've got specific phobias and now a new category. One sliver for each one of these, animal type, specific phobia. Natural environment type, blood injection or injury type, situational type, claustrophobia, something like that, and then other types, fear of clowns, fear of choking, fear of noises, that, you know, fear of big words, fear, fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. By the way, if you search on the internet for phobia dictionary, you will find a 28-page PDF document of all the scientific terminology of all the different phobias, like fear of big words, fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth, uh, all different kinds of fears. Fear of phobias, phobophobia. Just throwing it out there. Notice it says specific phobias diagnosed um, have been one of the most reliable categories, right? So when we take a look at DSM and we look at reliability estimates, fear of a specific object, of, a, of something specific, is the most reliable. Um, it's a relatively common disorder. Lifetime prevalence is over 12% of the population. So 12 out of 100 
um, people will more than likely during their lifetime have some kind of phobic reaction um, to a specific item. Women are diagnosed twice as often as men, but again, I would argue that they more likely to repeat, you know, report it. And the first symptoms of the phobia tend to appear in childhood or early, early adolescence, and then it seems to decline as we get older. I mean, become less fearful, I guess, with time, or just less willing to react to it. I don't know. So it's one of the things we see. Here are some, here's a, just a chart of some of the variations of specific phobias. Acrophobia, fear of high places. Agoraphobia, fear of open spaces. Allurophobia, fear of cats. Alogophobia, fear of pain. Anthrophobia, fear of men. Aquaphobia, fear of water. Astrophobia, fear of storms, thunder, lightning. Claustrophobia, fear of closed in spaces. Um, Xenophobia, fear of dogs. Hematophobia, fear of blood. Monophobia, it's not fear of mononucleosis, it's fear of being alone, mono, being singularly, so monophobia. Misiophobia, fear of contamination. Nyctophobia, fear of darkness. Octolophobia, fear of crowds. Pathophobia, fear of disease. Pyrophobia, fear of fire. Syphilophobia, fear of syphilis. Xenophobia, fear of strangers. Zoophobia, fear of animals or a single anim animal. And then phantophobia, fear of death. And you know, some of these, it's okay to be a little fearful, but when it becomes so much that it impacts your life you can't move, that's when it becomes problematic. The treatment, well, guess what? We really don't have any pharmacological treatment. You have fear of spiders, avoid spiders. It's that easy. You never come in contact with another spider, you're good. Now, if you have fear of bridges and you live in a place like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with nothing but bridges, that's problematic. I, I hate to say this, maybe you move. Just saying, because you know, you're not gonna be able to change that. Um, but there really isn't a pharmacological intervention that's effective. Nearly all empirical supported therapies for specific phobias involve exposure therapy, some kind of systematic desensitization or participant noddling. I show you how to deal with the situation, fear of flying, whatever it might be. And notice it says exposure therapies involve actual rather than imagined contact appear to be the most effective. So we could do in like, you know, uh, in virtual reality exposure therapy, but what we find is real life exposure is much more effective. So systematic desensitization, an example of that might be, let's say you're fearful of spiders. I think this is the last slide that we're gonna talk about, yep, today. So maybe you have a fear of spiders. So what we're gonna do is, first thing I'm gonna do is teach you how to do self-hypnosis to get you to relax. So I get you that you can do that, and you're pretty accustomed to be able to do that. Now let's talk about your fear of spiders. Now talking about it's gonna create anxiety. We get you to use your techniques to relax while talking about it. Once we've mastered that level, then we start looking at pictures of maybe the feared object of spiders, for example. We get you to stay calm while you're looking at the pictures, right? 
Then we get you to watch a video about spiders. That's going to create a lot of anxiety. We get you to reduce that, right? Then what we do is we go to a pet store. We just stand outside. We don't go inside. There's spiders in the window. That, of course, is going to be incredibly fearful. We get you to get calm. Then we walk into the pet store. Eventually, we get you to be in the same room with the spider, eventually to have the spider on your hand, right? So again, um, and you might say, well, why would you do that? With spiders, maybe it's not an issue. Maybe you don't need to be. Maybe being fearful of spiders is okay. But what if you live on an island and you're fearful of flying? And maybe flying needs to be dealt with. Maybe your job requires you to travel. Um, and so we need to overcome that in some way. But again, that's much more effective. Another technique is total immersion, flooding. You know, where you're fearful of spiders, I just surround you with spiders. Um, what we find is that can actually cause more harm uh, than good. It can actually push the fear over the top. You think that overwhelming the fear and then like fear factor, you overwhelm the fear and then you realize you're not going to die and so it lowers it. Some maybe that works, but not all. Some that can make it more traumatic. So again, this is just an, an approach um, for dealing with specific phobias. So when we get back together again, slide 17, remember that we're going to start talking about social anxiety disorder or what we actually call a third kind of phobia, social phobia. Thanks for listening.